the question this morning that we're asking ourselves is, how are we justified? Justified how? And we're in Galatians chapter 2. If you want to flip in your Bibles there to Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. There's a sense in all of our hearts, because we have the nature of God stamped on us, imprinted in us. We are created in the image of God. We know there's a God. And we sense that there is a law. In fact, the, the Bible tells us that there is a law of God that has even been imprinted on our hearts, even by birth, even by nature. So we have this sense of, of God. And we discuss it. We talk about it. We go, through, we go through life thinking about this law. And uh, here, here we are in life. Uh, thinking about the law that we have that is imprinted on our hearts, but it's not good enough. It's not good enough just to just to think about the law and have discussions about it. It's a, it's amazing how many people will talk about God. They'll talk about the law. They'll talk about the difference between right and wrong. But oftentimes they never come to a final objective conclusion because they don't truly know God. I've been listening to different people who are not Christians talk about this idea of ethics and morality. It's a very hot subject right now, even in the universities. And people are admitting, they're saying, there is something to living a moral life. And so they sit around and they debate about Morality, and you have these very winsome, you have these very articulate speakers, professors in psychology and philosophy and psychiatry and uh, even theology, all of these different fields from a secular standpoint, however, having talks about God and about ethics. And yet they have all these talks and they, they, never, really, they never really come to a final objective conclusion about anything. And it's amazing how many people will go and listen to this kind of stuff. They're enamored with it. Young people, thousands of people filling out auditoriums as they listen to people talk about ethics and morality. Then you have people in the street that are, say, well, I'm not going to go to an auditorium. I'm not going to listen uh, to any kind, of, uh, any kind of talk about this, and uh, I'm not going to debate about it. But right now, they're walking around Wilkes-Barre. They're in their homes right now. They're watching TV. They're, they're going shopping. And they will talk about morality, too. They'll talk about ethics. They'll talk about God to some extent. But they really themselves never come to any kind of conclusion either. They're in the fog. And they stay in the fog. So they're in this... This, this moral fog, this ethical fog, and they just kind of stay there. And sadly, many people stay there their whole life. They just kind of wander about. Well, I think, uh, I think maybe this is a good idea. Maybe I'll go to church this day, and then uh, I don't know if I have time for that anymore, and I don't even know if that's the right way. I, I'm not even sure about that. And so then they jump back out, and they wander around, and they live their life. And pretty soon, listen, six months passes, and then a year passes, and then five years passes, and then a decade passes. And pretty soon, their whole life is passing them as they live in this constant confusion. And living in constant confusion, and living out 
a life without really any true objective standards is no excuse before God. And there's a sense that we're all kind of in this conversation trying to find our way to God. That as long as we have these talks about God and we have these talks about morality and as long as we try to follow some kind of standard, we'll, we'll be okay. And if there happens to be a God, surely in the end he will accept us. But in the end, we're getting more and more terribly wicked even in our society. And in this confusion and in this fog, we're beginning to accept all sorts of bizarre behaviors. For instance, we're beginning to worship animals and celebrate animals more than human beings. This is, this is a bizarre trend. How important people's pets are anymore. Now, we, we can rightly say it's good to have a, a family pet. It's good to have animals. The Bible tells us that we're to take care of them. And in and, 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 and truth, they become a part of the family and they're loved and so on. But we've gone beyond that in our society to where animals are almost seen as human-like. Do you know that people oftentimes get more upset about cruelty to a dog than cruelty to a human being? How shameful is this? And then we're told to be quiet when we talk about human beings. If you show a puppy dog that's being starved to death and you can see its ribs, or an emaciated cat that's been brutalized by some human being, people go, oh, that's so terrible and tragic. How could anybody do that? You show a picture of an aborted baby, people go, we don't want to see that. Why are we showing that? Unbelievable. We have um, we've gotten to a very tragic place in our in our society, and we see this kind of even warped thinking uh, enter the church. We talked a little bit about this whole notion of uh, social justice last week, and this idea that there needs to be social justice, and we're going to continue to talk about that at some point. We've talked about the, this whole notion of racism, and we've, we have said that there is true racism, and uh, many people have experienced that in our, in our nation. Uh, people who are different colors than we are have often experienced uh, things that have been said to them, things that have been done to them that have been uh, uh, exceedingly wrong. We think about slavery in our nation, and we think about what a terrible, the Jim Crow laws, we think about what a terrible blemish uh, that is on our nation. And to some degree, we need to be talking about these things. But we've gone way past that. To now where we're introducing socialism into the church, critical race theory, this idea that the white man, in and of himself, by his nature, is wrong and often tyrannical. We have uh, all of these different kind of notions that are even coming into the church in the name of social justice. So we as a church say we are against racism in its true forms. It's wrong. And by the way, it's wrong on either side. This is often a neglected. We often talk about white racism, which, again, we have seen and have heard. But we don't talk about black racism, which is also in our nation. 
and is a tremendous problem right now in our nation. It's tremendously bad. And the desire of the media, the desire of institutions that are secular is to simply pit one group against another group so that we just continue to fight forever. Now here's the problem. The church is even buying into a lot of this stuff. And uh, by the way, if you want to, you can follow some of the things that I've been thinking about and talking about on our blog as I break down social justice. But here's one of the problems. We are so enamored with talking about social justice. And we almost, as I was talking to my mom this past week, she said, it's amazing. We talk about this stuff, and yet you often don't hear a peep about abortion. Isn't that something? All of a sudden, you have pastors that will have conferences about race, seminars about race. You have pastoral gatherings. Let's, let's uh, wave the flag of getting together leaders within the church. This has become a huge thing. Let's get the pastors together. Let's get the church leaders all together. And we're going to, we're going to talk about all of this stuff regarding race. Where is the outcry from the pastors saying, let's have conventions, big ones, seminars, big and important ones, calling pastors to action when it comes to the murder of our unborn children. All of a sudden it gets real quiet and real silent. Why is that? See, here's the problem. The problem is, is we have bought into an ethic, into a standard of law apart from God. And whenever you try to do that, you begin to think like the world. So the further and further we get away from the law of God, what is written in God's holy word, and the more we begin to think like the world, the more the world infiltrates the church, and all of a sudden we have people that are naturally thinking like the world, yet they're in church. This is why it's important for pastors to address all of these issues. They must. This whole idea of pastors shouldn't address these issues, uh, they should only talk about, well, they can talk about, you know, hell and they can talk about heaven, but they can't talk about these issues. This whole idea of separation of, of issues. Listen, it's nowhere in the Bible. The most qualified people in the world are well-trained pastors who know their Lord. They're anointed by God, not with some kind of super apostolic. I'm not talking about some weird anointing. I'm, serious, I'm just simply talking about called by God to study the Bible and teach the word and apply it to all of life not just to a slice of life. And uh, this is why, listen, this is why I miss men like D. James Kennedy. I mean, when he got up and he spoke, he would spoke, speak to the cultural issues of the day, and he would do it with uh, an authority that didn't come from his own political perspective, but came from the Word of God. We could say the same thing for uh, Francis Schaeffer, and we could go down the line of great men and women of God who have said, wait a second, we're, we're, we're not going to just simply address the issues that the world has told us we, we can address. We're going to actually address uh, the issues that God tells us to address. And we're going to speak to them with authority as we listen and hear the very words of God coming from God himself. It's amazing. We'll talk all about ethics. We'll talk all about moral morality. We'll even talk about the law to some extent. And people with itching ears all over the place will listen. But as soon as you break out the Bible, we've got a problem.
I want to show this to you, why people do still talk about morality and the law and uh, God and so on, who aren't Christians. Look with me at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans, Romans chapter 1. Verse 18 says this, For the wrath of God, we're going to get to that in just a second. By the way, God has not stopped being a God of wrath. He's not stopped. He's not the God of love in the New Testament, and in the Old Testament, he was the mean, cruel God. He was a meanie. And uh, you actually have... Um, even figures in history who would teach something like that, that they got it wrong in the Old Testament, so we needed a more loving God in the New. That's not what the Bible teaches. When we say that God is a God of wrath, we're not just talking about the Father. People have that notion. God the Father is a God of wrath, but his son, his son's a real pushover. And his son is the warm, fuzzy one that we all want to go to. The Father, not so nice. He's the one who strokes his white beard in heaven and has a, a glare on his face all the time, kind of looks like this constantly. And the Son is the nice one, and the Holy Spirit kind of, kind of keeps things together. No, no, when we talk about God being a God of wrath, we're talking about the Father being a God of wrath, the Son being a God of wrath, the Holy Spirit being a God of wrath. You can't separate them. You can't say, I'm going to follow the Father, not the Son. I'm going to follow the Son and not the Father. So when it's talking here about the wrath of God, it's talking about the wrath of the triune God, the fact that God is angry, the fact that God is not just a God of peace and he's a God of love, which he is, but he's also a God of wrath. That's what the scripture says here. For the wrath of God, the triune God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Every form of ungodliness, God is pouring out his, his wrath upon. So the Bible even tells us that people who don't know God, people who are outside of, um, of being his child, never, never have been forgiven of their sins, never placed their faith in Christ, that the wrath of God, Jesus tells us, the wrath of God remains on them. And uh, when we think about the wrath of God, we're not talking about an out-of-control God. We're talking about God turning away from sin. We're talking about his displeasure over sin, the fact that he cannot stand. In fact, he hates evil. He hates anything that is not righteous, that is not holy. That's God. So this... This wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what we do is we know that there's a God, but we not only know that there's a God, but we also know in our own hearts that there is even this thing called right and wrong. Flip over to chapter 2 of Romans. Chapter 2, verse 14 says this, For when Gentiles, that is anybody who's a non-Jew is a Gentile, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is, uh, we as Gentiles were not given the law of Moses. The law of Moses uh, came specifically to a people, to the Jewish people, to the people of Israel, given through Moses, given by God through Moses. But it says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, we have not been given the law as a people, 
but by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show, here it is, uh, that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. This is why this is why we have conferences with non-Christians talking about ethics. This is why we have uh, all sorts of gatherings with people talking about right and wrong and law and what it should be who are not Christians. They can't get away from it. Why can't they get away from it? Because number one, somewhere deep in their hearts, they know that there's a God. In fact, Romans chapter one even tells us they know God, even though they knew God. That's what the that's what the text tells us. They they don't know him in his forgiveness, but they know God. They not only know that he exists, they know him. But they suppress it. They do everything to push it down. I don't want to know the true God. So we'll talk about God. We'll talk about what should we do in society and all these different things. We'll talk about guns. We'll talk about race. We'll talk about this. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about some form of law, some form of right and wrong. But we're not going to go to the source because we can't do that. Why? Because we're too busy suppressing the truth. Even though in our very natures that law is with us. Everywhere we go, we go into a place as a non-Christian and say, this isn't right. I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that's what non-Christians do. Step after step, they, they walk and they say, I'm going to do this. I know I shouldn't do it. They, they hear that conscience. That conscience is that mechanism which allows us to know what is right and what is wrong, that law that's in our heart. We go, I know I shouldn't be doing this, oh, but I'm going to do it anyway. Nobody's looking, going to be continually walking. Listen, the more we walk in that path, the harder we get. The harder we get. The more we walk in that path, the more we desire those, those kind of things that are not, not right. Our conscience becomes weaker and weaker. And um, the things that we first used to blush at, oh, I'd never do that. All of a sudden we do it, and we say, well, I'll do that, and I'll do that. And all of a sudden we're, we're beginning to rationalize. And we think we're so sophisticated in, in our day with this modern technology. We're so sophisticated, and yet we'll rip a baby apart. How barbaric. We Listen. We haven't grown a bit in our nature because we've been the same from the beginning. We're all sinners. And I don't care if you put on a nice dress and wear a nice suit and tie and sit down in front of a crowd and talk in very sophisticated ways about the law. We're all dirty. The heart is uh, deceitful and sick, Jeremiah tells us. It's sick. Crystal and I were watching this video of this former abortionist as he was describing what an abortion is like, and he took out these metal tongs, and on the end of these tongs are these metal teeth. He said this thing is inserted into the uterus, and they rip out the baby piece by piece, arm, leg, another arm. He was testifying about this before Congress, and he said, I've done so many. He said, there would be times when, I lastly, I'd pull out the face, and he said, sometimes that face is looking up at me. 
This is called being desensitized. It's, it's, like, it's like when you watch something on TV, you say, ah, it's not that bad. And then you say, well, maybe I'll watch this. Not that bad. Then maybe I'll talk like this or watch this. or Suppressing the truth. Suppressing the law. Pushing it down. Now here's what we need to hear. We need to hear the clear message in the Bible that says God is a judge. He's a judge. And he is completely fair and he's completely righteous. And everybody, regardless of upbringing, color, of their skin, background, doesn't matter the money that a person uh, made in their life, what they did, doesn't matter the seminars they attended, every person in this room is going to stand before God alone. Alone. This is, this is the message, listen, this is the message that comes from the outside. Because we're all in this hamster ball trying to figure out the things of God. And what we need is we need a voice from the outside that comes in, crashes into that hamster ball as we're trying to figure out what's going on on the inside of it. We need a voice from the outside. And that's what, that's what God does. He comes in from the outside. He gives us a message. And the message is this. God is a judge. He's a judge. And he's a God of wrath. And he's a God of anger. And if you think that you're going to stand before God and just say, God, uh, I've got several excuses for my life, and, and I tried to figure it all, all out down there. And if you remember, Lord, I went to that seminar, and we tried really hard to figure out what the law was supposed to be. If you think that's the way it's going to work out, I promise you that's not what's going to happen. God's a holy judge. He's a righteous judge. And when we stand before him, it's not with mom or dad. It's not with grandma or grandpa. It's not with somebody else holding somebody else's hand. It's not with husband or wife or children or friends or church member. It's alone. It's alone. And we stand before God. Don't be deceived. This is the message we need to hear. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. That's what the word of God says. And over and over again, the Bible says God is a judge, and it talks to us about his law. Have you ever heard this phrase, the law of God? What does that mean? It's God's law. It's the law that comes from God. This is what he's going to do. He is going to judge every person on this earth one at a time. How he's going to do it, I don't know. But I know each one, the Bible says, is going to give an account. And whether it takes a long time or whether it takes a blink of time, I don't know how he's going to do it. But each person is going to have their day in court. You ever wonder, you ever say to yourself, remember like Job, he said, if I could only have my day in court, if I could only talk to God. Well, we're each going to have our chance. And he's going to evaluate our life against his law. And uh, when he gets done... He's going to be evaluating every deed, every idle word, everything that was done in secret, every motive. There, listen, God can be, not be deceived. In fact, the Bible tells us, as we just said, 
be not deceived. In other words, here, here's what it's saying. Be not deceived. God will not be deceived. God will not be mocked. Don't be fooled. God is not a fool. That's the point. Don't, don't think in your mind that God is winking at things. Don't, don't think in your mind God is not noticing or that God is just going to simply just pass over. No, no. Over and over again, our Bibles tell us God is a judge. God is a judge. God is a judge. God is a judge. And we spend too much time talking about working up to God and all this stuff. No, we need to hear a declaration about who God is. He's thrice holy, 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 holy. That's why when we sing songs with holy, I always like to hear it three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. You're holy. And on that terrible day, he's going to bring every person before him. We're going to give an account. The way that he's going to judge us is according to his holy law. And he's going to go through everything. And uh, if, we, if we have sinned once, he'll show it. Twice, he'll show it. Three times, he'll show it. A million times, he'll show over and over and over again the fact that we have sinned against his holy law. There's two verdicts at the end of this judgment. And that is either guilty or justified. Now, the, the justified verdict is something like this. You have lived your life in such a way that you have fully kept my commandments in everything. You have never messed up once. That's what he's looking for. The only person he will legally declare, that's what it means to be justified, to justify, is to be legally declared as righteous. So we stand before God, and of course we know that there's two judgments. There's the judgment for believers, there's the judgment for unbelievers, but we're just talking right now in terms of judgment, standing before God. And so this, this idea of justification is God saying, I declare you righteous. The Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles that the eyes of the Lord are going to and fro throughout the earth, seeking those whose hearts are fully his. He's looking for the righteous person. And he's been looking. He's been looking since Adam. He's been observing generation after generation. He's been going around the earth, as it were, uh, looking for the person whose heart is fully his, the person, the one person who has obeyed him in thought, word, and deed so that he can say, just, I declare this person spotless. This is what he's looking for. The Bible says at the end of uh, Matthew chapter 5 that we must be perfect. If he's going to declare us as just, we have to be perfect in everything that we thought, everything we said, everything we did. From the moment we were born. That's the only way that somebody gets a just declaration. This isn't looking so good, is it? The only way. He has, listen, he has no other standard but the standard of himself, the standard of perfection, the standard of righteousness, active righteousness, active obedience. So, he brings person after person after person after person before him. You know what the Bible tells us? The stamp is 
for person after person, all the world has fallen in sin, all are condemned. 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 He's a judge. And he's been looking for that one righteous person. He's been looking, and he hasn't found it in any of sinful humanity. All have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of God's standards. You have fallen short of God's standards. And he's a judge. He says this over and over again. I want to show this to you in the scripture a few times here. Psalm chapter 7. If you flip there to Psalm chapter 7. Psalm chapter 7, verse 11. Psalm 7. Verse 11. God is a righteous judge. A God who feels indignation or a God who feels wrath every day. Imagine that. He's a righteous judge and he feels anger every day. Day in and day out. God is a God of wrath. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Verse 17. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge. Here it is. God will judge. There he is again, the judge. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter or and for every work. God will judge. God is the judge of the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. Every matter. There it is. Every matter. Jesus talks about every idle word. Every matter. Every work. One more. Second Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy chapter 4. Verse 8. New Testament. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, here it is, the righteous judge, the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He's the righteous judge. So this righteous judge, as the scripture tells us, demands complete righteousness in order for him to justify. I want you to remember one thing. Justification is a legal declaration. It's the righteous judge saying, I recognize that you are righteous. I stamp you righteous. The only way, the only way to know God, the only way to ever experience everlasting life is to be stamped righteous, to be declared as righteous. And yet what this does is it condemns us all. It puts us 
all in this in this hopeless situation of where we say, but wait a second, wait, wait a second. I I maybe the Holy Spirit's even beginning to work on your heart. You're beginning to say, but I don't want to go to hell. If he's the righteous judge and you're saying he's a God of wrath and that he will actually uh, punish sinners according to their sins, that's exactly what the text says. But he's looking for absolute perfection. And the only way he can describe and define and declare somebody as righteous is if they truly are. This was, this was the problem. How do we get... How do we get declared righteous? Because that's the only way into heaven. How do we get that stamp of approval from God if we're, get, if we're to get his blessing? That's where Galatians chapter 2 comes in. So why don't we go there quickly? We're going to finish this up very quickly here. Galatians chapter 2. Paul is talking about this whole idea of justification, being declared righteous by God. The first thing he tells us is it's not by our birth. And he's talking about himself and Peter and other Jews, and he says this in verse 15. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So we, we know who we are. We're Jews. We've been given the law of God, that's a benefit. We've been included in the people of Israel, that is, a, that is a, a wonderful benefit. But his point here is that even being a Jew, with all of the benefits of being a Jew, does not make you justified before God. There's some irony as he talks here about Gentile sinners. Of course, he would say very clearly in Romans that all have sinned, including both Jew and Gentile. We don't have time to, to look there, but he's saying... We're Jews, of course, and we're not Gentile sinners, but even we Jews, even us Jews are sinners and that we are not justified by our birth. In fact, he goes on to say this. He tells us that we're not justified by works of law. Look with me at verse 16. He said, we know that a person is not justified, that is, declared righteous by works of law. Some, some translations have in there the law. There's no the in there. He could be talking about the Mosaic law, but he could also be just talking about your own standard. Somebody says, well, I'm a decent person. Proverbs tells us that we're all very uh, quick to declare our own goodness before, before God. And so as long as we think we measure up to that standard... As long as we're a decent and good person, that somehow God will declare us just. And Paul is saying this, it doesn't matter if you're trying to obey your own law or the Mosaic law. We know that a person is not justified by works of law. In fact, he says it again at the end of verse 16. He says, because by works of law, works of law, no one will be justified. Let me just stop here very quickly. Did you know... If you were able, if you were able, the question comes up is if, if a person was, was able to and willing to, to obey the law of God in their heart, soul, mind, and strength, in everything that they did for their entire life, starting on day one, they would be justified. If you could pull that off, if any person could ever pull that off, they would be declared just before the Lord because they'd be perfect. The problem is the Bible says nobody can do that. Why? 
because we're born in sin. So somebody says, well, I'm going to start at uh, age 30. Yeah, but what about the first 30 years? Somebody says, I'm going to make a real turnaround now, and God's going to judge me based upon the, the rest of my years lived. No, no, he, he judges us based upon the whole of life. And so Paul is saying, no matter how hard you try, theoretically, if you could do it, if you were born without sin, sure, you could do it, but nobody can because we're all enslaved to sin. We're all, we're all condemned under, under the law. And as a result of the law of God coming to us, God says, not just, not just, not just declares us not righteous. So then the question becomes, how do we become declared righteous if the repetitive teaching of the Scripture is that we are born in sin, condemned? Here it is. Here's the answer. Middle of verse 16. But, but, through faith in Jesus Christ, so we have believed, the word here is into, we have believed into Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of law. Close with this. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for hearts who are fully his. Generation after generation comes and goes. And not one person was fully his until one day. Until one day. And at the appointed time, there was a man who was born under the law who delighted in the law of God. From the moment he was born, everything he did Everything he said, everything he thought was righteous and holy and perfect. He drove his brothers and his sisters nuts. Even his mom and dad couldn't believe it. And he did this his whole life. And because he was so different and because he was so righteous and so perfect and so holy... He was mocked. He was otherworldly. He would talk about things that people didn't want to talk about. Unpopular things. He didn't go along with the crowd. He wasn't politically correct at all. But he spoke the truth. In fact, he not only spoke the truth, he said, I am the truth. He's holy. And he lived the perfect life in our place. So God looks at his life and says, righteous. That's the one my eyes have been looking for. That's the one. The one who's holy, the one who's unblemished, the one who's spotless, the one who's the perfect sacrifice. The eternal Lamb of God comes and puts on flesh in our place. Then he dies on a cross, and he takes our sins for us. Because not only is God a God of wrath, but he's also a God of love. 
For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so what Jesus did was he lived that life that God was looking for, but he lived it as a substitute in our place. He was living for us. He died for us. That's what it means when Christ died on the cross. He died for our sins. So the question is, how is anyone ever going to be stamped justified before God when we're doing all of these other things? The only way to be identified as righteous, to be stamped legally righteous, according to Galatians, is to have faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and to say, I believe that you were perfect for me. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you're my Savior. I cling to you. So that when God looks at me, he stamps me as righteous. He says, I declare you as righteous, not because of my own righteousness, but because I have believed, as Galatians says, I have believed into Christ. Amen? Isn't that exciting? And so as we, as we believe, you say, well, what do I do? Believe. Believe. Simply take a hold. Simply say, Jesus, I, I receive you. I believe that you're the one who's come so that I might be justified. Because the only way I'm going to get into heaven is not by trying harder and harder, works of law, doing my own thing. God, that's not going to work. But only to your cross I cling. Christ, I come to you and I cling to you so that at that end of time when I stand before the Lord, I'm not at that other judgment, that, that awful judgment, great white throne judgment, but I come before you at the judgment seat of Christ declared I'm righteous. Because of you, because of you, and because of only you. Father, we thank you for your word. This, this message that says we, we must be declared righteous, and yet we, we recognize in our own strength and our, our own abilities, works of law, we're never going to make it. Christ, I, I pray that you would bring a, a holy sense of who you are to our spirits. I pray, Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know you, it's not been justified, legally declared as righteous, right now in this moment they can believe through faith, faith, faith in Christ alone, faith in Christ alone, nothing else, to be found in Christ, to have Christ as our representative, on that day when we stand before you, we don't say it's about my life. We say it's about Christ's life lived for me. There's one here who doesn't know Christ. You have you've come into this room and you're not you're not sure. You haven't believed into Christ. And if you were to stand before the Lord today, it would, be a, it would be a terrible day. It wouldn't be a good day. You say, I need the Lord to come, and I need him to, to be my Savior. I need him to be my representative for me. If you need Jesus, you need Jesus today. Lord, I pray you'd even break every chain, break every unbelieving barrier. Break, break every bit of bondage. We pray that the, the, the demons would flee. That you would bring release, we pray. Release, we pray, even now. The release of the Holy Spirit.
Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. If that's you, you need Christ. First time, you say, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. Maybe your heart's beating a million miles an hour. Say, that's me, that's me. Today's the day. Today's the day. If that's you, would you raise your hand? I need Christ. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we adore you. We thank you for your work. Thank you for your work. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. For his sake alone we pray. Amen. Amen.